However, when you look at the demographic, it's really dominated by women. It's dominated by people who have higher incomes. It's dominated by people who are educated. So, uh, in effect, the people who need yoga the most, the lower socioeconomic status, the minorities, are the people that are getting it the least. And that, if you will, is a form of social injustice. So, one way that we can rectify that is to bring yoga to everyone. And that means um, bringing yoga to mainstream society. So what are mainstream society's institutions? They are the public schools, they are the workplaces, and they are the healthcare system. Now the problem with bringing yoga into those systems is that they require evidence for safety and efficacy. And that evidence is research. Uh, you can't bring yoga into a clinic unless you know, the doctors there know that it's safe and effective, and you need research to demonstrate that. Welcome to Yoga with Impact, a podcast interviewing experts sharing yoga and healing practices in diverse communities. My name is Danielle Beck, and I'm the co-founder of the Yoga Impact Charity, an organization sharing evidence-based yoga with groups of people healing from trauma globally. Today I'm talking with Dr. Satbir Khalsa, one of the world's leading yoga researchers. Dr. Satbir Khalsa is the Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's the Director of the Kripalu Center and the Kundalini Research Institute, the Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Yoga Therapy, Chief Editor of the Principles and Practice of Yoga in Healthcare, and author of Your Brain on Yoga. We talk about Satvia's pioneering journey of yoga research in the US, why yoga research is a key component for improving accessibility in yoga, why yoga is beneficial for healing from a scientific perspective, the impact of yoga on stress and burnout for healthcare workers, the ways that yoga research is impacting the policy world and becoming more mainstream, and how embedding yoga within schools and hospitals will change the world. Joining me today is one of the world's leading yoga researchers, Dr. Satya Khalsa. Welcome. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. You've devoted your life to yoga research. What sparked your interest in this field? Well, I'd been a yoga practitioner for a few years um, and living a yoga lifestyle, living in an ashram yoga community and um, teaching and practicing. And I always had an interest in science. And um, I, it started to occur to me that, you know, there was value in research on studying um, these states of consciousness that yoga can lead to and all the other benefits that yoga can provide. And so I uh, started thinking about ways that I could possibly get involved in uh, research on yoga. and. Um, it turned out that the only way to really manifest this, this was in the mid seventies, was to actually go and get a PhD myself and 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 become a researcher. And can you describe what it was like pioneering in this area back then? Were you met with skepticism or curiosity? Yeah, there was definitely both skepticism and curiosity. Uh, not a lot of people were doing research on yoga at that point in time. Um, just to give you an example, um, when I was at the University of Toronto, just about to go into graduate school, I was interviewing possible mentors 
for my PhD program, and I happened to interview with one the, the chair of the department actually, um, and he happened to ask in the, in the course of our conversation, he said, "So, what's your ultimate goal?" And I kind of let it out. I said, "Well, I'm interested in studying yoga and its benefits in altered states of consciousness." And and he said, "Well, if that's your goal, I would recommend that you not go into research at all." I mean, basically, he was saying this is a waste of time. You should <laughs> reconsider. This is not value. Wow. Uh, so, um, there was that kind of skepticism at that time. Yeah. Mm, and when you first began your work, I believe there was no funding to do research in yoga at all. And you kind of began somewhere else. Can you share a bit about that journey and how it evolved? Right. I mean, there was no opportunity to sort of do a PhD with someone who was doing uh, research on yoga because there there were very very few people, um, so I had to satisfy myself with getting a conventional degree in neuroscience um, and just picked a mentor where I was that I felt like I could live with and and whose research would be of some interest and and some value in in terms of my getting a PhD. So I finished my my doctoral work um, and this was in the mid 80s. And at that point, I was considering postdoctoral positions, and um, there was, you know, one researcher that was involved in mind-body medicine, and that was Herbert Benson. Dr. Herbert Benson founded Harvard's Mind-Body Medical Institute, and he's responsible for the discovery of the relaxation response, your ability to encourage the body to release chemicals and brain signals that make your muscles and organs slow down and increase blood flow to the brain. His research in the 60s and 70s was able to show that meditation promotes better health. And I haven't happened to connect. I happened to have a connection with him through a faculty at the University of Toronto, and I met with Herb Benson. And he said, "Well, do you have an MD?" And I said, "No." And he said, "Well, I can only take someone with an MD because they would have to cover their salary from their clinical practice." So that was a no, um, and there was no other opportunities that I was aware of. So I basically just said, okay, now I'm just going to do a postdoctoral fellowship in another area, perhaps of interest to me, and perhaps an area that might have some overlap or relevance with yoga. And the one area I came up with was um, biological rhythms and sleep, because there, at least you're looking at mechanisms in physiology that regulate altered states of consciousness, sleep and wake, for example. So if you're looking at studies in the neuroscience of regulating states of consciousness, you're pretty close to something that has maybe some relevance to yoga. And it was an area of interest uh, to some degree. So so I went into circadian rhythms research um, and spent a good um, 15 years doing that. You and I both know that yoga is beneficial. Why is researching yoga so important? And I'm also interested in how you think it might be key to improving accessibility in yoga. Right. I mean, that's, that really is the biggest reason. It's, it's it, you know, the biggest justification is that accessibility. Um, and the reason is that, that, you know, we have really quite a strong popularity of yoga in the general population. In the U.S., you know, in 2017, it was 14% of the population that practiced yoga in the past year. So and it's growing very dramatically. So that is good news. However, when you look at the demographic, it's really dominated by women. It's dominated by people who have higher incomes. It's dominated by people who are educated. So 
in effect, the people who need yoga the most, the lower socioeconomic status, the minorities are the people that are getting it the least. And that, if you will, is a form of social injustice. So one way that we can rectify that is to bring yoga to everyone. And that means um, bringing yoga to mainstream society. So what are mainstream society's institutions? They are the public schools, they are the workplaces, and they are the healthcare system. Now, the problem with bringing yoga into those systems is that they require evidence for safety and efficacy. And that evidence is research. Uh, you can't bring yoga into a clinic unless you know the doctors there know that it's safe and effective, and you need research to demonstrate that. So if we can do the research, for example, on yoga in public schools and show that it's worthy of implementation in public schools and that that happens, then suddenly everyone gets yoga. So that's that's really the strongest rationale for why we need um, yoga to mainstream society. And the science really gives us the language to talk about how yoga works. Um, so when we talk the language of modern society, which is science, um, we're much more likely to get a receptive uh, response. So for example, if you go off and you want to teach yoga in a prison setting, um, and you start talking about the benefits of yoga for self-regulation of emotion and mind-body awareness and so on, um, you're going to have more likelihood of, of getting accepted and, and allowed to teach in that kind of a venue. And can you describe why yoga is beneficial for healing from a scientific perspective and possibly share some of that language? Sure. Um, so, I mean, when we talk about yoga, we need a definition, first of all, because a lot of people are practicing asanas. Uh, hmm. and just asanas, and they call that yoga, and that's fine. I'm okay with that. But technically, I, I refer to that as limited yoga. Um, yoga traditionally is not just the asanas, but also the breathing techniques, the pranayama, um, the deep relaxation that we get in shavasana, and just you know consciousness of physical relaxation in general, and very importantly, the meditative component of yoga practice. Um, so that is traditional yoga. And um, all four of those components um, have a number of different effects uh, on the body and the mind. All of them contribute to what I would call sort of physical improvements in, in sort of overall fitness, things like flexibility, muscular endurance, um, uh, things like respiratory function and so on, just keeping your physical body fit, which is a major, um, uh, of course, health concern and, and wellness maintenance for preventing things like chronic disease. All four of those components also um, contribute to, uh, over time with practice, to what we call self-regulation of internal state, um, the ability to control internal functioning, both physical and mental. And the most important ones are stress and emotion regulation. And over time, that leads to the characteristics of resilience to stress and equanimity in the face of the ups and downs uh, of emotions during daily life. Um, the other thing, of course, is mind-body awareness, and that comes primarily through the meditative component. When you focus your attention and you practice that kind of focus of attention, you're engaging the attention networks in the brain. Ultimately, that leads to a self-regulation of your own internal thought processes and a realization that you are not your thoughts, that you have some degree of self-regulation possible over your thoughts and your reaction to your thoughts. And that uh, leads to a state we call metacognition, that understanding that, that you have the ability to self-regulate your thought processes. 
And then finally, for many people who really get into yoga and practice very regularly, adopt what we might call a yoga lifestyle and practice over the course of years, many people start to really talk about uh, and report a transformation in their lives. People will say things like, yoga changed my life. And this comes, I believe, from some of the sort of the deeper experiences that you get in the meditative component, this sort of this unitive state of consciousness, um, you know, what we call samadhi in yoga. Um, this deeper, profound experience that 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 opens you up and and leads to a transformation and change in in life meaning and purpose. So what you can see from that is that I've described yoga working from connective tissue and muscle all the way to the deepest experiences that humans can have and and everything in between. So yoga really makes changes on a sort of a global functional level, from that gross level to the subtle level. Um, and you're improving functioning on a wide variety of different mental and physiological functions. So that, of course, um, maintains your health and wellness and improves your, your sense of well-being, um, your sense of life purpose and meaning. And then, of course, because you're improving functionality and all those functions, you're also helping with disease state because disease is nothing more than different functions in the body deteriorating or, or not working properly. Um, we've been running some free virtual yoga for healthcare workers during COVID. Um, what's the impact of mind-body practices for things like stress and burnout? And what could modern medicine learn from yoga? So burnout is a major issue in modern medicine right now. It's it's you know it's a topic of journal publications in our leading medical journals. Um, in the U.S., for example, uh, on average, one physician com commits suicide every day of the year. Um, that's, that's the frequency of this. And it's not only impairing the quality of life um, and stress and burnout of physicians, it's also impairing their ability to, uh, you know, care for patients. So it's actually affecting health care. Uh, and, it, you know, physicians are turning away from the profession because they can't manage the burnout. Yoga is very good at promoting stress management, which is at the core of the whole idea of burnout. Now, of course, <clears throat> there is a problem in our medical systems that they're causing this high levels of stress. And, and so we need systemic changes to the system. However, I believe that medicine is inherently a stressful profession. You're dealing with people's lives and in many cases, life and death. So it's inherently a stressful profession. And that means you need to have a high level of resilience. Um, and you can increase your level of resilience to stress uh, and emotion with the practice uh, of yoga. And so there are now a number of studies that have been done showing that mind-body practices and specifically yoga have positive benefit on burnout itself, as well as all the consequences of burnout, which are chronic stress, perceived stress, um, anxiety, depression, and all the other sequelae that come from, from chronic stress. In fact, we've conducted a few trials, one that's already been published on yoga for Harvard physicians, mm -hmm. um, in which a six-week uh, Kripala yoga program was shown to you know, reduce burnout and all of those other mental health characteristics. And we've got another manuscript uh, from a study on medical residents, uh, and that's being submitted for publication. And that also showed reductions uh, in burnout and mental health characteristics. So um, I believe that yoga has a lot to offer um, healthcare providers. Um, and this issue of burnout was there before COVID. 
So you mm. can imagine that it hasn't gotten any better. In fact, it's gotten substantially worse with COVID. So um, it, it is something that's of great need. Um, and, and I think the research is important because the research will then show that this is something that's viable and hopefully medical schools will start to incorporate it. In fact, um, Harvard Medical School itself has now mandated a, a resiliency program for all first-year medical students. Uh, and, they, and they have to go through a number of different training programs. It's just a one-day program, but um, they get yoga or they can choose Tai Chi or cognitive behavioral therapy. And I end up instructing these young uh, medical students um, about the benefits of yoga and then take them through a chair yoga practice. That's amazing. Speaking of all of this research and change and evolution that's happening in this field, when we first met during your visit to Sydney a few years ago, during your conference presentation, you were describing an explosion of research in yoga therapy. Are we approaching a point where we reach a critical mass of research that translates into the policy world, or are we still quite far away from that? Well, it's it, it you know it's not a digital event. Um, it, it's it's a slow it's a slow increase. So we are seeing in certain fields of yoga research where there have been some strong studies and strong publications, we're starting to see manifestations of that uh, in, in the healthcare system. So, for example, um, Dean Ornish did a number of studies on what was essentially a yoga lifestyle intervention for heart disease and showed effectively that he could not only stop the progression of heart disease, but actually reverse that um, and that has manifested, it was eight years ago that a system of um, healthcare insurance here in the U.S. called Medicare approved his program for reimbursement for um, heart disease patients. And another example is a couple of areas of research in, in yoga where there have been uh, quite a few publications. One is in the field of low back pain, and the other is in, feel, in the field of cancer. And the studies on cancer are really addressing uh, the side effects uh, of not only the cancer diagnosis, which are stress and insomnia and anxiety, um, but also the symptoms of um, uh, treatment, which are you know the brain fog, the brain fatigue from chemotherapy, um, uh, and uh, nausea, etc. And so there's a good body of research, of strong research in both of those fields. And as a consequence, we now have a few publications which are essentially called consensus statements or policy statements. And these are published in major journals in the field, which talk about what is now being recommended for the treatment of those conditions. And yoga is now recommended for those treatments based upon the research. And these consensus statements are the ones that clinicians read. Um, that means that we're making this transition from research into the clinic. So now a clinician can say to his or her patient who has cancer or low back pain, you know, I just read a consensus statement showing there's benefit for yoga practice. You might want to consider uh, this as an intervention to help with your nausea or your back pain. How do you see embedding yoga within healthcare and schools changing the world? Well, to me, that's that's the best place uh, to put yoga because it's really combining prevention with, you know, behavioral intervention, uh, with self-care, uh, with a healthful um, maintenance practice. Um, and if, you know, our society currently doesn't have these kinds of skills. We don't have skills for self-regulation of stress and emotion. We don't have skills that enhance our level of mindfulness and mind-body awareness. 
We don't have skills that we can apply to sort of change our perception on life, our sense of life, meaning, and purpose. In fact, we're not even that good at strategies to encourage um, you know, physical fitness and physical activity. In fact, we're in the midst of a, an epidemic of non-communicable disease because of the sedentary behavior and poor dietary choices. So these skills um, are provided by yoga. As I've described in that you know, uh, list of the benefits of yoga practice, um, it's a perfect fit for preventing these chronic lifestyle diseases. What better place to put these practices than into our children? Not only because um, it will prevent disease in adulthood, but also because there's a very high burden of mental health and physical problems in our kids right now as well. So I think there's a big need um, for um, these strategies in our children to help them with their problems, but also you're going to prevent these communicable, non-communicable diseases in the future. And once you get it into the schools, then everyone gets it because the law says that all children have to go to school. So boom, it's like it's universal. And the analogy I like to use for this is actually a historical one. So in the 1800s, it was known that you know, oral health could prevent cavities and other oral health diseases. And that was a big burden in our schools because children would have these problems with oral health and that would impair their ability to learn, not to mention their overall health. And so we see in the beginning of the 20th century, the implementation of dental hygiene into our public schools. Um, and so dental hygienists were going to the schools and teaching dental hygiene to the kids in school because it was important. It was going to impact the children in terms of their learning, in terms of their overall health. So flash forward now, 100 years later, where is dental hygiene in our society? It is so deeply embedded that we don't even think about it. Who would think about you know, traveling without taking a toothbrush? It's unheard of. Um, it's just deeply embedded in our culture. There's no need for justification of it. There's no need for funding of it. It's just part of what we do. Our parents teach it to us, our teachers teach it to us, our dentists teach it to us. It's just everywhere. And that's dental hygiene. So yoga is simply mind-body hygiene. It's how do you maintain your body and your mind. And that's what yoga can provide. And if we put it into the schools, it'll be like dental hygiene. You know, maybe a few decades from now, nobody will even think about it. Of course, we all practice yoga. It's part of being a human being. Um, you know, who drives a car and owns a car and doesn't maintain it and not get an oil change? You, you know what's going to happen. Um, the engine's going to fall out. So the same thing is true with the human mind and body. We need to maintain it. And yoga provides those skills that are maintenance for um, mental and physical health. Dr. Satvia Kelsey, your work has opened the door to so many practitioners to share yoga in schools and hospitals globally. My sincerest gratitude to you for your dedication to this field and for your time today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks very much. You can head to the podcast notes for links to the research that Dr. Satvia Kelsey mentioned in today's episode. In the next episode, I'll be talking with Atira Tan, founder and director of Art to Healing an Australian charity committed to supporting the recovery of girls and women from the Asia-Pacific region who've experienced sex slavery, exploitation and abuse. For more information about the Yoga Impact Charity, including our recently launched 200-hour yoga teacher training and ways that we're having impact, you can head to our website, yogaimpactcharity.com.